John chapter 14, the first six verses. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the word of the Lord. And you may be seated this morning. You know, this might seem like a really unlikely passage for an Advent message. I mean, after all, this familiar text is about Christ's departure, not about his coming. It's about the night of his betrayal. And to set the scene for just a moment, Jesus has already dismissed Judas, the traitor, and he's on his way to negotiate the price of his treachery with the chief priests and the officers of the temple. You know, they settle on only 30 pieces of silver. And that day, that's about five weeks' wages for a common laborer. Judas sells his soul so cheaply. But in any case, Jesus is preparing his disciples for this most tumultuous night for what is about to happen. Because before the night is done, Judas will betray him with a kiss, and he'll be apprehended by temple officers who are accompanied by several hundred Roman soldiers. And all of his disciples will abandon him. Peter will deny him three times. This mock trial that he will be subjected to will last all through the night. By 9 a.m. the next morning, he'll be nailed to a cross. Six hours later, he'll be pronounced dead. He'll be taken down from the cross, hurriedly wrapped in burial clothes, and placed in a sealed tomb all before sundown. All of this is going to unfold in less than 24 hours from the time Jesus is giving them this comfort. So the Lord is preparing his disciples because the whole ordeal is going to leave them reeling. It's not difficult to see why on that particular weekend, all of the disciples sank into deep, dark depression. And of course, what we need to remember is that Jesus not only knew what was coming, we also have to remember that his death was not inevitable. As he said in Matthew chapter 26, verse 53, he says, I can ask the Lord at this moment, I can ask my father, and he will send more than 12 legions of angels to rescue me. I don't have to go through with this. No one could take his life. He had to give it. So Jesus was walking this path willingly. But this is the path that he was born to walk. From the manger to the cross, Jesus was born to die and rise again. And so even though this particular text is about Christ's impending departure, not about his arrival, the purpose for which he was born is actually embedded in this exchange between Jesus and his disciples. You see, the eternal son was on a mission, a rescue mission, a mission agreed upon by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternity past. 
Listen, Christ's coming was set out in the covenant of redemption, a covenant that predated creation itself. Christ's mission was the Father's redemptive plan, which the Son was willingly to execute. He agreed to execute it under the power of the Holy Spirit. So while it is the Son who came, he was sent by the Father, and he came in the power of the Spirit. I mean, what a wondrous truth that is. We are saved by our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit a God of mercy and grace. Well, as we've seen in our study of Philippians, and I'm going to refer back a few weeks to when we were in chapter 2, the eternal purpose for Christ's first coming is actually brought in sharp focus by the Christ hymn that we find in chapter 2. It traces the Son's divine journey from the highest heights of heaven to the lowest depths of creation and then back again. In that hymn, it traces the journey of our Savior's mission. From all eternity, the Son, as we recall from the hymn, is of one essence with the Father and the Holy Spirit. We're told that he dwelt in the heavenly realm of divine glory. His form was the form of God. But he didn't consider this equality with God something to be grasped with clenched fists something to be held on to at all costs. Instead, he let go of that majesty of the divine form, and he became incarnate. He was born in the likeness of men, and he took upon himself the form of a slave. His deity was veiled in a tabernacle of humanity. And when people looked at Jesus, his physical presence commanded no wonder. His visage didn't bring men to their knees in worship. They saw no splendor when they looked upon him. No outward glory. No dazzling brilliance. All they saw was a man. They only saw his human form and a very lowly human form at that. And as if that weren't enough of a humiliation to go from the glory of being in the existence of God himself, in the form of God himself, to being not just a man, but a lowest form of a man, the form of a slave. As if that weren't enough, he humbled himself further by being obedient unto death. As I said a moment ago, Jesus was born sinless, and so having remained sinless for all of his days, and since death is the wages of sin, he had no need to face death. Death is our destiny, not his. And so indeed, he yielded himself to death in our place. He took what we deserved, but his humiliation was not yet complete because he didn't just submit himself unto death. He humbled himself further still by subjecting himself to the obscene death on the cross. That's the path of Christ's descent from the glorious heights of heaven down to the lowest abyss of creation. He came to meet us where we are because this is where we live in that lowest abyss of creation. That's our dwelling, the deep, dark abyss of a sin-fractured world. But here's the point. 
the eternal Son, didn't leave the majesty of heaven and lay aside his glory and assume the likeness of sinful flesh simply to join the fallen human race and all of our wretchedness. You know, as the old saying goes, misery loves company, right? But that's not why he came. You see, the son humbled himself and became incarnate. Yes, he took on the likeness of sinful flesh, but merely identifying with us and living in the muck and the mire of this world was never the end game. That wasn't what he came to do. As all the angelic announcements made clear, he came to be the savior, the deliverer of his people, deliver us from the deadly oppression of sin. The son didn't stoop low and humble himself just to commiserate with us. He didn't come to save us from our temporal, earthly discomfort. There's a false gospel going around today that says if you serve the Lord Jesus Christ, all your days will be happy and you'll be well and you'll have everything you need. When the Bible says through much affliction we enter into the kingdom of heaven, Jesus himself said to us, in this world you will have tribulation. Those are Christ's words. I will believe him over the false teachers of today anytime. And so indeed, Jesus didn't come to rescue us from our temporal earthly discomfort. He came to rescue his people from the deep darkness of this wicked realm. We were trapped in this deep, dark, wicked realm. He became incarnate then that he might rescue us, that he might lift us from this abyss of this sin-corrupted world. And that required that he, first of all, lived the life we could never live. He lived the righteousness of God every moment that he lived. It required him dying in our place to atone for our rebellion against God. It required his burial in the tomb that we might mortify the sinful deeds of the flesh. You know, that's one aspect of his work that we often don't give enough attention to. It's very important that the scripture says that the gospel includes that he was crucified, dead, buried, and then raised again. Because as he went into the tomb, he took with him our old sin nature. That it would be left there. When he came out of the tomb, you see. And it also required his resurrection. Because without his resurrection, we would never walk in newness of life. And then it required his return to the Father. That he would open the doors of heaven. That we might dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now. You know what's interesting is that the disciples ought not to have been surprised at the things that Jesus was telling them on the night that he was betrayed. From the very beginning of his ministry, Christ declared that he was born to die and rise again. In fact, as early as John chapter 2, when Jesus, at the very beginning of his ministry, cleanses the temple, that first cleansing. There's two cleansings, one at the first of his ministry, one at the end of his ministry. John tells us about the first one, and at that first cleansing, he tells them that he's going to die and rise again. Now, of course, in the beginning, those references were somewhat veiled, but they became increasingly more transparent as that appointed hour drew near. Toward the end, Jesus began stating very plainly 
that he must be rejected, killed, and rise again on the third day. And in our passage, Jesus is explaining to his disciples that he didn't come then to simply abandon them when things go south. He's trying to tell them that what he is doing is necessary for their salvation. He wants them to know that things haven't gone awry. This is the plan from the beginning. You see, as with many Jews of the day, The disciples believed that the deliverance the Messiah would bring was a political deliverance. They thought his first coming was his only coming. They thought that he was coming to join them as their earthly king and restore the throne of David in Jerusalem. And that's what they were looking for. They were looking for him to raise an army, to foment a rebellion, and to defeat their earthly enemies. And so all that time, the disciples didn't know what to make of Jesus' repeated declarations about his rejection, death, and resurrection. What does that mean? That doesn't fit with our truncated theology at all. And of course, after all was said and done, they were able to look back at the scriptures and realize they had misinterpreted a lot, right? They realized that the Messiah would come not just once, but twice. They were able to see that he would first come as the Prince of Peace, as the suffering servant who would bear our sins upon himself and die to reconcile us with God. Then he would come a second time as the victorious King of Kings and bring final salvation to his people and final judgment to this world. But they wouldn't see this until after the resurrection. And so despite Christ's confounding statements about his death and resurrection on the third day, they still had hopes that, well, I don't know what that means, but Jesus is going to set up his kingdom here and now, and we're going to be behind him, swords drawn. That was their idea. And so they rejoiced on Palm Sunday because all these people flooding out from Jerusalem and joining on their way to Jerusalem joining in the procession and hailing Jesus as king. I can almost hear the disciples' anticipation. The time has come. It's here. Well, you see, that was less than a week ago at this point. And so on this particular night, we can see from, actually, if you back up to chapter 13 of John, you can see that they were still anticipating this. They were waiting for that moment that he would declare himself king and make his move to take the throne. As Peter says, listen, I'm ready for the fight. I'm willing to die for you. I'll die on the way to this victory. So they were still anticipating this. They were ready to take up arms and follow him into battle and defeat these overlords, fight for their liberation from the oppressive power of Rome. But you see, that's not why Christ came. Caesar was nothing compared to their chief oppressor, the prince of this world. That's the real enemy. The repression of Rome was nothing compared to the bondage of sin. Rome could take their temporal lives, but sin is eternally fatal. Yes, Christ had come to take the throne as the son of David, but it was a far greater throne than the one in Jerusalem. He had come to take the highest throne, the throne of God in heaven. 
And so in order to complete the salvation of his people, the son had to return to heaven, not only to present himself as the sacrifice before the father, but also for his coronation. He had to sit down at the right hand of the father that he might take dominion, not simply over Rome, but over the entire universe. Remember, upon his resurrection, he is granted all authority in heaven and on earth. And he's granted this as the head of a new redeemed humanity. And so in returning to heaven, he opened the way for you and for me. Granting us a home in the Father's house. That's what this passage is saying. Now, of course... Being devoid of understanding, the disciples were greatly distressed by Christ's announcement of his departure. This just doesn't fit. Where are you going? Right? And so with tender compassion, our Lord seeks to assuage their anxiety. Let not your hearts be troubled. That's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. How often I need to hear that myself. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus is saying, quiet your fretful and your restless souls, your fearful souls. Trust God. Trust me, he says. Believe what I'm telling you. And then he says, in my Father's house are many rooms. In other words, I'm not going back to my room in the Father's house and leave you behind. No, there's a place for all of you in my Father's house. In fact, there is a place for all of my people in all ages in the eternal presence of the Father. This is why the Son left the glories of heaven in the first place. This is why he came to earth and assumed a human body and nature to make way for the elect to join him in the blessedness of divine dwelling. Remember, in the beginning, Adam and Eve lived in God's presence. You and I, as human beings in God's image, were created to dwell in his presence. We were made for that. But in their rebellion, they were alienated from God and evicted from Eden. And it was like glowing over a cliff. The fall was greater than any could imagine. And humanity fell into this deep, dark abyss of sin, and there was no way to climb out. This is why the Son came to redeem the elect, to reconcile us to God and lift us out of the quagmire of this world and into his glorious presence. And Christ explains this further then when he says, Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you if it were not so? I mean, think about what Jesus is saying here. Listen, fellas, have I ever led you astray once? You know that I always mean what I say. And so believe me when I'm telling you. Yes, I'm leaving, but it's a necessity. This departure is a necessity because the time of my condescension is reaching an end. And by my reascent into heaven, I'm making things ready for you so you'll have a dwelling in the Father's presence as well. So Jesus says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to be with myself, that where I am, there you may be also. 
Christ is assuring his disciples of his mission. I'm not abandoning you. I'm doing what I came to do. In fact, far from abandoning you, I am making you safer than you ever will know. The reason I have come is to make you ready for heaven and heaven ready for you. You can rest assured then, I'm not going to stop short. I'm not going to get to heaven and forget all about you. Now, I will come again and I will take you to be with myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And so we will be reunited, Jesus says, finally and forever, never to be separated again. And look forward to that. That's what he's telling them. So that's the wonder of Christ's redeeming work. For those who trust in Christ, then there will be no future evictions from God's divine presence. Isn't that a wonderfully good news? And why? All because the Son humbled himself, left the glories of heaven, took on human flesh that he might die in our place, thereby putting sin to death. As Augustine so eloquently put it, whenever we're finally glorified and in the presence of the Heavenly Father, we will no longer have the ability to sin. It will not be a possibility because sin has been defeated. It has been killed by the Lord Jesus Christ. He put it to death when he died in our place. And so for those who are in Christ, when we are in his presence, sin will finally be a thing of the past. That's why we'll be able to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We couldn't dwell in his house forever with the presence of sin. Now, of course, the disciples are still bewildered by Christ's words. When he says, you know the way to where I'm going, Thomas immediately objects. You would expect it to be Thomas too, wouldn't you? He's the ever-present pessimist. Some would say realist, right? And so he speaks up. Lord, we don't know what you're talking about, right? We don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Now, let's not be too critical of Thomas. He's not saying that I have no idea of the destination you're talking about. He's saying... I know the destination is the Father's house. You just told us that. What he seems to be saying is, we don't know where the Father dwells. So how can we know how to get there? We don't have the map, right? And Jesus replies, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Christ, you see, is telling Thomas, listen, you do know the way to the Father's house. Because you know me. I am the way. I am the way. Not only that, I am the truth. Apart from me, there is no truth. I am the life. Apart from me, there is only death. You see, those three phrases are absolute phrases. In the Greek, it excludes any other way. It excludes any other truth. It excludes any other life. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And with these three absolute statements, Jesus is telling us how he is reversing the fall. 
That's what he's telling us. Christ came to lift us out of this deep abyss of corruption into which humanity was plunged. Christ came to reverse our fall from grace. He's the way, the way back to the Father's favor that we might be admitted into his presence. He's the truth. He came to lift us out of this sin-darkened ignorance into which we fell whenever Adam chose to believe the lie over the truth of God's word. You know, Jesus is that light that penetrates the darkness of our corrupted reason. You know, just as John chapter 1 says, Christ is the light that came into this world of darkness and he came to lift us out of the spiritual blindness with the light of his word. And finally, he's the life. When Adam sinned, death began to reign over all humanity. We were plunged deeply under the power of death. Well, the son descended into that realm of death that he might indeed rescue us from that deep, dark realm of sin and death and lift us up into the glorious realm of glorious life. He took us from the clutches of death and raised us into that heavenly realm wherein the God who is life dwells in fullness of glory and holiness. You know, we don't often think about Advent in this way. Too many people, especially in our day, look at the birth of Jesus in merely sentimental terms, right? I mean, what a sweet story. Have you heard that before? A helpless babe born to poor parents in a stable with only lowly shepherds to pay homage to this newborn king. Oh, it just pulls at your heartstrings, doesn't it? Mm. But that babe in the manger, oh, they don't know how radioactive the one lying in the manger was. It's the creator of the world lying in that manger. Come as a helpless babe. And so it's the creator coming to a world that refused to welcome him. And he was on a mission. That was just the first leg of this incalculable journey from the heights of heaven to the lowest depths of creation. Think of it from Christ's perspective. Think about it from him and what he saw. One moment he's in the vast expanse of heaven, dwelling in majestic and brilliant glory, existing in the form of God in eternal bliss. The next, he's a cramped embryo in the darkened depth of Mary's womb. It only gets worse from there. When he emerges from the womb, he isn't met with the fragrant pleasantness of incense. Only the wealthy had that. No, he's met with the stench of animals in a stable, right? He isn't wrapped in royal attire and laid in a soft mattress in a gilded cradle, in a spacious palace. Surely that's what he deserved and more. But no, he's wrapped in torn strips of cloth. He's laid on the stiff straw of a feeding trough in a stable crowded with livestock. And listen, sinless purity had come to live in a hostile world of sin. 
And as he grows, this is something you need to remember, every moment of every day was an unimaginable burden to a one so pure and a world so corrupt. You think it was easy for Jesus? It was difficult every moment of every day to put up with this world of darkness, for he was the light. It was a burden. It was an affliction. It was a trial to put up with the darkness around him, with the sin around him, with the grievous way that people treated the Father in heaven, the one whom he loved so dearly. We have no idea what it was like for Jesus to live in this world. It was a constant affliction to his soul, grievous to his holiness. Because you see, this is important for us to remember, the son didn't assume human nature while there was a garden paradise on earth, while there was an Eden Adam and Eve fell when there was absolutely no reason. You talk about the height of stupidity. They lived in paradise. There was nothing they needed. There was nothing that wouldn't satiate them in that garden. And they lusted for more. But Jesus, he didn't come into those pristine conditions He came into this world after sin had destroyed its original glory. And that's why scripture says he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Yes, he was without sin, but he had to live in a world broken and suited to sinners. He had to breathe the oppressive air of iniquity. He had to endure the miserable conditions of a world scarred by humanity's rebellion. A world frustrated by the effects and consequences of the fall. He grew weary and his body felt the agony of hunger and thirst. That wouldn't have happened in the garden. He experienced the pain of suffering. That wouldn't have happened in the garden. He felt the grief of searing loss. That wouldn't have happened in the garden. He would be tested under the worst of possible circumstances, and yet he would stand steadfast and faithful. Adam couldn't stand under the best of possible circumstances. Jesus stood under the worst. And finally, to add insult to injury, He was betrayed not by those who claimed to hate him, but by one of his closest. And all the others would also abandon him in the moment of his greatest suffering. Those who were just a few hours earlier were saying, we're with you to the end. Well, the end came sooner than they thought. So Jesus would go to the cross alone. He would bear the sins of those he came to save. And yet, through all of this, Jesus never once grumbled. He never once complained. Think about that the next time you begin to complain. He never once grumbled. He never once complained. He never disputed with the Father. How often have we gone to the Father and said, Lord, what is going on? What are you doing? I don't understand this at all. And we want to dispute with God. Jesus never did. He received and accepted it all as the hand of the Father to fulfill the Father's purpose. 
And through all of this, he remained without sin. That was his condescension. But he condescended to reascend. And having accomplished redemption for his people, the Father highly exalted him. Gave him a name, the divine name, the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And upon his ascent into heaven, those who hear and believe the gospel are swept up in his wake. Ah. As he ascends, this is what he, uh, Ephesians chapter 4 is talking about. This glorious train that he leads into glory. Christ carries us into the wondrous presence of the Father. And this is why Christ came. This is why he was born in Bethlehem. The sun descended that we might rise from the deep, dark abyss of a sin-corrupted world and that we might dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And that's the wonder of Advent. And to our God be all glory forever and ever. Amen.